to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. All right, you guys, we have Tim back, our favorite uh, guest who loves to tell us all the juicy information. Tim is very informative on a lot of criminal justice issues, and I always love to have him on Blacklight to explain to our audience, to inform them on different issues so that we can better advocate for those incarcerated. So without further ado, Tim, it's yours. It's all yours. Thank you. How's everybody doing? It's good to be back on Black Light. One of the things I wanted to discuss today was TED Talks, or specifically TEDx. I think a lot of people are familiar with TED Talks being technology, entertainment, and design. They were developed around an 18-minute speech because that was the optimal amount of attention span for humans and they were very successful and i believe they have gone on for a number of years with tedx the x standing for independent it's a independent version of ted run by delia cohen and it's spearheaded at providing a ted-like opportunity to those behind bars incarcerated individuals or staff members who work for the prison systems very interesting platform and a unique opportunity and after many many years of working to get it here in Virginia one of the inmates at Green Rock succeeded in working with the powers that be to get Ted brought here they put an open application process out for people to submit for auditions and I was fortunate enough to be able to go for an audition Mm -hmm. and I learned a few things through the experience that were eye-opening and brought up some thoughts as to how people in this environment, inside the walls, be given opportunities to speak on topics that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. One of the things I learned is that TEDx is governed by DOC. DOC is not going to approve them to come in and do live tapings, live filmings for millions of viewers if the people giving speeches are talking about anything against the criminal justice system, innocence, anything that would expose the truth. Of course. They are interested in second chances, rehabilitation, and politically correct topics. Topics of transgender inmates or uh, race discrimination and, and, and such. I did mine, my audition true to who I am about innocence and about fighting an innocence case in prison. And I was unceremoniously told, (laughs) DLC won't approve that. Sorry, it was great, but we can't have you on. (laughs) (laughs) So it enforces the importance of platforms like Black Lights and what you offer to me and others where we have the ability to talk about any topic related to criminal justice or prisons or the the experiences of that without being censored by political whims or, you know, 
EOC wanting a publicity tour of, see, we're not as bad as everybody says. <laughs> right. And so I brought my TED Talk, my audition talk. It's about six minutes. And I wanted to, to read it to everybody because I think that the information is important. I think it's good for people to hear the power of involvement by those who are outside these walls mm -hmm. and how important they are to people like myself having a chance at proving our innocence or fighting our cases. The TED talk, TEDx talks that were brought here were to be done on the basis of bridging the gap. And so I wrote my audition from the perspective of bridging the gap between me in here and the person outside and how that importance of bridging that gap, getting that information out there, the understanding, the realization that I can scream from the mountaintops that I'm innocent. I can have all the evidence in the world, but if I can't reach somebody on the outside, and if somebody on the outside cannot help me bridge that gap, I'm never going to get out. Um, so this is what I this is what I presented, and, and you know I hope that that will bring some perspective. Hi, my name is Tim Wright Jr., and I've been incarcerated 16 years for a crime that I'm innocent of. When someone says bridging the gap, you would typically think of second chances, reentry, and transition. However, one of the most important topics that receives almost no attention is innocence. In American society, most people readily accept that if you've been indicted or arrested, you are guilty. And if you have been convicted of a crime, they are even more content with the premise that you were a criminal and deserved whatever punishment you received. There is a great deal of media attention and political interest in second chances and reentry, mm -hmm. because as humans, it is easy for us to believe in our mercy and benevolence. With innocence cases, you would have to believe that the media, police, prosecutor, judge, jury, and other representatives of the judicial system got it wrong. This requires you to admit you were wrong and accept responsibility to do something about the situation. Everyone here has seen TV shows with police interrogations, and every single one the investigators try to convince the suspect that their criminal actions were mitigated or justified by circumstance, abuse, or anger because that suspect is more likely to confess if they can shift blame for their actions. It is a human fallacy. We all look to shift responsibility or blame and are more likely to do something for others if it makes us feel merciful or benevolent. On a basic level, this is why innocence and innocence cases receive so little attention and recognition when they are such a huge reality in America. Bridging the gap for me has a very different meaning than for most. About four years into my incarceration, I realized that I had exhausted every possible means for making a difference in my case. It was then that I recognized the only chance I had at freedom was reaching people who were on the outside of these walls or outside the justice system and appeal to them for their help. The first step in that mission was to provide easy access to not only general information on innocence, but access to everything involving my case. This required setting up a website that has been upgraded and updated three times now. The second step was to reach out to anyone who may have the willingness to hear me out or the ability to affect change in my case. My wife, Danielle, was critically instrumental in this step. She took social media with zero experience and very quickly learned how to reach people on their terms and pique their interest. 
The third step required harnessing the opportunities that each individual brought to my case for innocence and turning it into actions that would further educate and inform others about innocence and help in the process of securing my freedom. It would take hours to recount all the people's stories and paths that this journey has taken us on to get to the point where we are at now. But I will share a few of the incredible opportunities that have happened along the way. Danielle and I have had the opportunity to speak on radio shows in Europe and the U.S. We have been a guest on numerous podcasts here in the U.S. We have both been on 60 Minutes Australia and Reason Without with ID Discovery. Students at Georgetown University worked with Long Island Films to produce a eight-minute documentary laying out a case for my innocence and a three-hour documentary about my and three other cases for innocence that has won nearly every film festival and award around the world. I have had the opportunity to speak with law students at Georgetown and UC Berkeley who are part of the Making an Exonery Project. I've had the pleasure of working with an amazing investigator from New York, an amazing innocence nonprofit, Uncuff the Innocent, amazing forensic experts from New York and Canada, as well as many other amazing individuals. Whether it's while I'm incarcerated or once I secure my freedom, I will continue educating people and informing them of those who are innocent. Some of the important facts that people need to know in order to bridge the gap are, one, only 3% of all those indicted go to trial. That means that only 3% of the charged individuals in America can even assert innocence after having been convicted. Therefore, all the innocent statistics we hear of are only representative of that 3%. Two, the actual number of wrongful conviction innocence cases is impossible to know because most are secured by private means. However, estimates suggest that 1% to 5% of all felony convictions may be wrongful convictions. Innocent. Three, there are more than 1.5 million people in state and federal prisons on any given day and nearly 11 million admissions to local jails each year. 3% of 11 million is 333,000. And if 1% to 5% of these are potentially innocent, 3,300 to 16,500 people each year enter the criminal justice system potentially innocent. Four, in a November 2018 prison legal news report quoting National Registry of Exonerations data, of the 354 individuals exonerated by DNA analysis, 11% had pled guilty to crimes they did not commit, and the National Registry of Exonerations has identified 359 exonerees who pled guilty. Even those with a guilty plea can be innocent. Five, in America, the majority of funding goes to law enforcement and prosecution not to defense of those cases. Combine that with a court system that says their job is to uphold convictions and there is little chance of proving innocence. Thus the saying, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. It's not only my responsibility to educate people as someone fighting to prove their innocence, but imperative that former exonerees do the same. We must change your impressions and understanding of innocence to reverse years of misinformation and empower you to make a difference. Please join me in bridging the gap at www.innocenceforTim.com. Thank you. That was amazing, Tim. I'm glad you brought that to light because, uh, you know, innocence is always put on the back burner. Me and Danielle talk about that all the time. Innocence is always put on the back burner. And if you don't have that smoking gun, then a lot of times, you know, the Innocence Projects and other organizations aren't going to pick up your case you know, my husband's innocent and, you know, we always get, oh, well, we can't overturn the plea. And a lot of people just don't even want to fool with it because he was forced into a plea. 
And, you know, I've put his story out there and it really hasn't gotten any traction. And so, you know, some people get traction on their innocence case. They get tons of media publicity. They get tons of celebrities that help advocate. And then you have some who, you know, have to continue to fight that battle silently. And nobody really understands how it is to, you know, keep saying you're innocent, but also have to fight that battle silently. A lot of them even have to do their own legal work because they don't have attorneys who want to come help because they don't have that smoking gun or they don't have something that can catch the media's attention for everybody to jump on that case and advocate for it. And so it's important because, you know, I hear so much about second chances, but I never hear about, you know, anybody innocent. And there's so many people that are innocent due to all different types of things, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel, the law states that you have to have a lawyer, but it doesn't state that you have to have an effective lawyer, you know, Um, You know, being forced into a plea deal or being forced into a confession, Um, just all types of things that many people don't understand why people are innocent or why they plead guilty when they know that they're innocent. And so this is something that I want us to continue to talk about, because even though that, you know, you've had all this, you know, publicity, you've had Georgetown, you know, y'all been on podcasts, you've been on 60 Minutes still, you're still sitting in there. You know what I'm saying? And you're still waiting for that one thing that can get you free. And sometimes, like I tell Danielle all the time, sometimes you have what you have. There's not going to be new evidence. That you just you have what you have. You know, with whatever's in your paperwork, you have what you have, and you have to find loopholes yeah. and things like that. And so that's the reason why I'm going to school to be an attorney because I want to be able to help. You know, I want to be able to the one to to find those loopholes and not tell people, oh, well, I can't help you because this is not a political enough case to get you any help. Or, you know, we can't find that smoking gun or, you know, and even if I can, I'm going to do what I can to try and then help, you know, hopefully resource. But yeah, it's very important. I thank you for, you know, bringing that out. I I would love to see the advocacy community, specifically the innocence community, come up with a first chance slogan. You have the second chance slogan. What about all the people who haven't had their first chance yet? I'd like to see a first chance slogan, first chance TV t-shirts, you know, first chance articles about the people who haven't had a first chance yet. Mm-hmm. Like, we skip them to get to the second chance. And that's, it's, you know, you're not just victimizing the original victim in the case by not having a truly just and honest prosecution of the case, but you're victimizing the person who's been in prison, their family, their loved ones, and everybody else involved over not having a first chance at justice, let alone a second chance. And, uh, you know, I'd I'd love to see that uh, take hold and, and, you know, that be something that uh, comes as popular as second chances. Well, I told Danielle, we might have to be the ones to start start the, the wave, <laughs> as they say. And, you know, maybe other people will jump on because it is egregious how many people you see that are wrongfully convicted. What do they say? Be the change you want to see in others? Yeah, because if you're not if you're not changing, if you're not attempting to try to change, then you're the problem. You know what I mean? And you have a lot of organizations that. They say that that they're about, you know, ending mass incarceration and, you know, this and this and that. But then they're further from the problem, you know, because they've never experienced it. So they're really far from the problem and don't understand what it takes. And so they just use that, you know, to get what they need to get them, 
you know, the funds that they need to do the work, but they're not actually doing that boots on the ground work to actually end mass incarceration. I would challenge people to truly know who they're dealing with when they're dealing with people who claim they're about changing mass incarceration. For example, Thurgood Marshall, well-known Supreme Court justice, his son Thurgood Marshall Jr., he is a well-known advocate in mass incarceration circles. But what a lot of people fail to realize is he's the chair of the board of directors for the largest private prison corporation in America who has the worst prison record in America. How can he be on one side for ending mass incarceration and on the other side he is politically and financially beholden to the largest private prison corporation, you know? So it's, it's easy for people to say things. Mm-hmm. It's another for them to actually do, do it, them, yep. you know, to, to walk, you know, to talk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it is unfortunately, I think it is a holistic approach when it comes to it's educating people to all levels, the politics, the money, there's numerous sides to the problem, not just one. So uh, definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. uh, And we're going to keep this conversation going. This is not going to be the last. We're going to, you know, we're going to keep talking about it until, you know, there's a change. And like I said, it might be me, you and Danielle and Jeff that have to keep pushing (laughs) it forward, you know, but we're going to get there. And I thank you so much, Tim, for everything. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, and I appreciate it, and uh, you have a great day. You too. Bye. All right. So, yeah, again, it's very important that we keep the innocent people at the forefront because they are always left behind. You know, I agree with second chances, but I morally agree with first chances for people who even never had a first chance to get their life back when they were wrongfully convicted. And we, we just have to be more fierce in advocating for people that are wrongfully convicted and try to understand, you know, what was going on during that situation. Because like in my husband's case, you know, he kept telling his lawyer that, you know, he didn't have the best interest and that he needed him to be the spearhead and he knew his case, but the lawyer didn't want to do that. You know, he sold him out and was like, I, you know, I'll go to trial. I'll put on the best show I can but you're going to lose. And, you know, looking at the evidence, I don't see how it was possible to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, because I need for y'all to understand, if you don't know, it is the state's burden of proof to prove that that person committed that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Not you have, you know, a little bit of, oh, well, I think they did it. No, it has to be beyond or you have to have no doubt in your mind that that person committed that crime. And that evidence has to line up with that beyond a reasonable doubt. And a lot of people are convicted off of circumstantial evidence. And that is where the system plays tricks on American people, especially when you're a lay person and you don't know anything about law and you're a juror, and they're giving you jury instructions, but the jury instructions contradicts themselves. The law contradicts itself. And so that's why I do this show, to keep informing people, especially, you know, if you've never, if you don't know anything about law, learn it, because you never know when you're going to be a juror, and you don't want to be responsible for 
putting somebody in prison for the rest of their life when they didn't commit a crime and when the state did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So we will continue to have these conversations about innocence and uplifting the innocent people and their families because it's it's so hard to fight for your loved one knowing they're innocent and you can't get any help. Or if you get help, like in Tim's case, you know, he's had some some people look at his case and they're saying, okay, well, we can't find the smoking gun to bring you home because the state has tied it up into a way where, you know, we need new evidence or we, you know, different things that they need to get the case back in court due to our laws. And so that's why I commend New York for advocating to change the wrongful conviction laws that they have because they understand that the way the law is set up, it is not set up for anybody innocent to be able to get out. And you always hear you're innocent until proven guilty. No, that is never true. In America, you are guilty and you have to prove your innocence before anything. And that takes the longest and hardest thing to do is try to prove that you are innocent when the state tries to stack the cards against you and make you look like you're a monster when you're not. And the fact that they don't have the right person that committed that crime. So please, y'all, continue to advocate, continue to keep your ears to the ground, boots on the ground, and be a change. Don't just say that you want to advocate. Don't just say that you want to end mass incarceration. Do it. You have to do it because actions speak louder than words. So, yeah. You know, until next time, family, I appreciate y'all. Take care. Stay up. Peace. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care. Take care.